And welcome. Uh, we have Sue Bolton um, and Chris Peterson to join me, Narita Chalaya, in this, today's uh, program. It's a fresh morning out there. Hope all of you are getting ready to work or, you know, very comfortably under the doers. We have a full-on program today. We have, <coughs> excuse me, three um, interviews. Got <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, one interview is with the Senior Rights Victoria organization who just had a conference. The other one is with a, an organization called Shesh La Femme, which is talking, uh, which is um, hosting a seminar. And the topic of discussion is feminism and journalism, given that International Women's Day is not far away. It's a good start for that campaign. And the other uh, a very important interview is with Geraldine Atkinson, who is Deputy Chair of SNAKE, which is Secretariat National Aboriginal and Islander Care Children, uh, Child Care. So that is an important one because um, there is a different bundling of funding which seems to reduce funding towards children in the Aboriginal community. So we have um, a host of articles from Green Love Weekly and some other press. So do you have anything to start off with, um, Sue? Let's start with one, one of the articles you've got ready. Well, I wanted to start talking a bit about um, this announcement yesterday um, in, in the media about Australia's plans to increase um, defence spending by $26 billion over the next, next decade, which, um, you know, to... Um, get to a point of spending 2% of GDP each year, the gross domestic product, on, well, what's usually called defence, but actually we really should call war because Australia's defence spending is not usually nothing to do with defence. It's always to war spending because right. it's usually invading other, other people's countries. Um, so basically, um, Malcolm Turnbull has made an announcement yesterday, which will mean that Australia will spend more than one trillion dollars uh, in military spending over the next two decades. That is one trillion dollars. That's criminal. If you can imagine what one trillion dollars is um, in the next two decades, and we supposedly have a budget crisis. I don't, I don't understand that. They can't spend money on health. In fact, they're cutting back. They can't spend money on education. Again, they're cutting back or privatising it. And they can't do so many things that benefits people. But they can spend. What do they, they have? To, they're increasing the uh, defence budget by another $26 billion, which brings it from $32 billion up to $58 billion just this year alone. That's right, and actually there's an article in The Age um, yesterday saying $12.5 billion for submarines. What else could we buy? Um, <laughs> and, it, um, and some of the things that lists are $1,000 cash for everybody. Um, $12.5 billion could fund $988 payments um, for all 12.6 million Australians in the workforce. You know, it could fund five state-of-the-art hospitals. It could forgive a quarter of all student debts from university courses. 
I'm sure it can build many hundreds of houses for people who are homeless. There are about 35 mm. to 40,000 on the list for public housing. That's right. It could fund six years of Gonski education funding. There you go. It could um, completely reverse all the foreign aid cuts and it could provide... Um, uh, it could address one year of bracket creep for workers on higher wages. So that is a massive amount that this that is being wasted, absolutely wasted, on what is a corporate handout for the mili- the manufacturers of military hardware. And this is mismanagement of the budget, um, in as far as people's needs goes. Well, it's basically what it is is asking all Australians especially working class and middle class and poor Australians to pay for um to pay for Australia's war drive as well as also pay for corporate tax breaks oh so that that is basically what's happening so they want us to accept cuts to medicare cuts to public education mm. cuts to our public services to pay for One trillion dollars of spending on war and, and we know what wars have done in the past because the Iraq invasion by the US, Australia, Britain and a whole lot of other countries is what has directly led to the creation of the Islamic State in, in, um, Iraq today. I know. I mean, talking about that, just, just think of, um, the refugee crisis. It's this sort of spending, this sort of mentality, this sort of uh, dedication to destruction that then produces refugees. And they complain about refugees. They complain about, well, the Muslims are radicalizing. What what do you expect when you attack them and then you you sit on their hands? They've got to do something. Not that I'm excusing any of the terrorist activities. I think that's totally a no-no. But you provoke people to an extent. It, It also... Uh, opens up a space for people who want to misuse youth energy and um, so on to, to, to attack what they see as the West. It's, it's a Western mentality as far as they can see it. The West is attacking us, so, so we will attack them back in the best way we know. It's a bit like the Palestinians throwing rocks at the, the Israeli attacks in, in um, Israel-Palestine, if you like. So when they react... Um, and I le- let me repeat, I am not excusing any of the terrorist um, activities, but the fact is people will react when you invest in destruction, when you invest in war against people, they will react. And it also creates this massive influx of refugees. Just this morning there was news that in um, Europe the High Court or, uh, had decided that people who were staying in a refugee camp have to be moved on. Um, it was unsanitary and the rest of it. So now they've got to be turfed into some other un, you know, unknown space. They don't know where they're going. They've got no idea where they're going to send these refugees to. So it just makes things, I don't know, if it really, really frustrating when you think about it. Well, especially when you consider that all of us, you know, Australia's, um, Australia has been involved in invasions. Yes. Um, going back to Sudan in the 1800s, mm. going back to the Boxer Rebellion in China. That's right. Australia also had a military base in Malaysia for many, many years after the Second World War. <laughs> well, I know. So Australia <laughs> has been 
invading and interfering in other people's countries. But I think um, you make a very uh, important point about the displacement of, People. well, in, in Syria almost an entire population has been displaced right. as, a result of, as a result of wars Millions. and largely as a result of Western and other countries interfering in, um, in Syrian politics. Yes, and, and I think the UN made a statement that this is the largest displacement of people since the Second World War or something because it's so many thousands and thousands of people who are being you know, made homeless. Now, you, got, you, you have an article on um, refugees. Chris, did you want to sort of um, chip in on that? Uh, yes. Uh, this week was good for business for broad spectrum with uh, tripling of profits to... $2.51 million. Oh, nice for them. Yes, and broad-spectrum people would know that... Uh, uh, broad-spectrum used to be called Transfield, but there were successful protests against them, so they've changed their name. <laughs> and we know what their names are now. That's <laughs> they, right. They yes. can't hide it. That's right. <laughs> so you've got the refugee camp being set up, and again private and corporate sector is making money out of the misery of people. Yes, that's right. So morally wrong. Yes, that's right. That's right. And what's our government doing? Um, benefiting from it, I suppose. Not helping much. them out. No, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that is why I think people's protest is very important. Mm. And we we had a protest last um, last Saturday, wasn't it? Or was uh, that against that was against health cuts? But there's another rally coming up on the 20th of March, which we'll talk about later. That's right, yes. Yeah, there are lots of activists. But there are a couple of important um, actions happening, one tonight and, and one tomorrow night. Do you want to yeah, talk about that. Oh, yes, that's fine. Uh, there will be a vigil outside the Broadmeadows Detention Centre on Camp Road this evening from 6pm, so people should get down there. We'll have electronic candles, so it will oh, happen. Oh, that's good. Which is very good. Um, no problems with wind or rain, which is great. And on the 20th of March will be the really big rally that got 15,000 people. Last year. And the vigil tonight, I think, is important because there are a number of people in the Broadmeadows Detention Centre, which is official name is MITRE, Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation, oh a name they chose to try and pretend it wasn't a detention centre. So there, so there are a number of people in Broadmeadows who are in danger of being transferred or deported to Nauru. There are also people in Maribyrnong Detention Centre in danger of being deported to Nauru. Baby Asher, like while, yes, it is a victory uh, to some extent that the that Baby Asher hasn't been sent to Nauru, Baby Asher and all 267 asylum seekers who are in Australia um, seeking medical attention from Manus and Nauru are in danger of being sent to sent back to both Manus and Nauru and really we've got to keep up this tremendous momentum mm. that was built up through the civil disobedience of the doctors in Brisbane yeah hats off to them yeah so i think we've got to keep building on that to really try and force the government to back down on the whole system of offshore processing and mandatory detention Yep, I think the the refugee question is a, a vital one, and people are feeling it. And I think any person with common sense to understand this, 
you can't torture people who've only been tortured and, and, and turfed out of their own home and country. And what people don't understand is nobody wants to leave their home. They've got the roots there. They've got the social connections. They've got a history. They've got their homes. Who wants to leave their home and run away? I think that's that's something some people don't understand. Although most of our listeners are pretty pretty um, conscious of it. Um, it's it's that misunderstanding and lack of understanding that then throws up right-wing organizations against um, people who come into the country. That's a gross misunderstanding. But um, baby Asha is only in community detention. She, there's no guarantee she'll stay there. I mean, they might send her back to um, Nauru. I mean, that's what Dutton said somewhere in Facebook I read, but I don't know how true that is. No, no. It, it, all 267 people are vulnerable, and the Australian government even rejected an offer from New Zealand government to take the 267 asylum seekers in Australia um, for medical treatment um, and because they say that... Um, that this is a backdoor way into Australia. So the Australian government is on a vendetta against refugees. And the media interviews of, of government officials, including Dutton, are really um, misleading because they let him get away with saying, we've stopped the boats and we've stopped drowning. They haven't stopped boats. They've just no. stopped revealing the boats. That's right. Uh, they keep, keep it covered in secrecy, and they don't care about people drowning. They just want people to die somewhere else out of Australia's sight. So it's, it's not, that hasn't been resolved. And even the people on Nauru and Manus Island who've been found to be refugees uh, and who've been let out of detention in those two countries are in a very vulnerable situation where, you know, people have been subject to sexual abuse, to attack of various kinds, lack of medical treatment, mm. all sorts of things. Mm. And basically, um, you know, women, you know, people on Nauru and Manus have been banned from having mobile phones. There are constant searches to try and strip people of their mobile phones. Okay, on that note... I'm going to play a, a quick song while I get um, the Senior Rights Victoria manager online. Um, if you have just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, Green Left Weekly Radio and Friday Breakfast Combined Program. We have um, Jenny Blakey, the, C- the manager of Senior Rights Victoria online. Here we go. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning. Thank you for offering to talk to 3CR. Um, I believe that uh, Senior Rights Victoria recently had a conference, or it finished yesterday, didn't it? That's right. Yes. I wonder if you could fill us in about um, what the conference discussed and maybe a bit of information on the abuse factor. Certainly. um, The conference is the fourth national elder abuse conference, and our focus was on the issue of elder abuse as it impacts older people and elder abuse we, is defined by the World Health Organization as any act of harm or mistreatment towards an older person that occurs within a relationship of trust and our experience is the relationship of trust is usually a family member. It can be a friend or a neighbour but our experience is it's usually a family member and the abuse is occurring between the generations and we think that that indicates uh, the ageism in our community where older people are regarded as having less rights 
uh, than younger people, um, particularly, as I said, within the intergenerations um, conflict that occurs within families. And uh, families can, younger younger members of the family, usually adult children, uh, sons or daughters, can think that they have a bit of an entitlement over their parents, particularly in regards to their finances. And uh, the abuse can be expressed in other ways that are psychological and emotional and, and uh, physical. So that gives you a, a bit, I guess, a bit of a picture of the notion of the abuse. Mm. That gives me a little bit of idea in, in a sense that we deal, well, I, I'm, as a, as a nurse, I deal with people who've been abused emotionally and so on, especially children, and all those categories you talked about, social, financial, psychological, sexual, all that applies to children as well, which is great that they've got that definition into the elder people abuse thing. But I also believe that elder abuse is very underreported, very much like domestic uh, family violence. Is that true? That's true. We don't have solid um, prevalence studies to indicate um, how frequently it's occurring uh, to the older population. And we say older, so the age of 60, which mm. um, is quite a, a span now from sort of like 60 to, you know, well over 100 we have some people calling us. Um, but most of our callers tend to be in their 70s and their, their 80s. Uh, but the, the estimates are that it could be 5 or 6% of older people who experience elder abuse. But the World Health Organisation says that it, it could be up to 10%. And we do think it's very underreported. Uh, we heard from a, a speaker from New York during the conference, Jackie, Dr. Jackie Berman, and she talked about a prevalence study that they did in New York, which indicated for every uh, person who reported elder abuse, there were 24 that went under unreported. And we think people don't know they're experiencing elder abuse. They haven't heard this sort of um, concept. Uh, and also there's a reluctance to report it. There's a sense of shame that this is occurring within the family. Mm, that's a very common social phenomenon, isn't it? Now, I'm just wondering, how has the government responded to this issue? Well, we were very pleased that uh, the Senator uh, George Brandis, the Attorney-General, um, opened our conference and came down and announced uh, at the conference that the, the government was referring um, to the, the Australian Law Reform Commission a reference to look at the issue of elder abuse. And this is the first time the national government has recognised it as an issue and done something about it. So we're very pleased about that. We think it's fairly limited response because only looking at the legal area, which I guess is uh, the only area that Senator Brandis can do at this stage, we would certainly like the issue taken up more broadly um, by the government and look at the social changes that are required to impact upon elder abuse as well. And social changes mean making people aware that it exists, like we've been um, going through years of uh, awareness raising around family violence. Mm. and uh, that it's not acceptable. It's not something that our, our society tolerates in the way that older people are treated. Mm. I've got um, two guests in the studio, Sue Bolton and Chris Peterson. And Sue would like to ask you something, if you don't mind. Hi, Jenny. Thank you. Um, Hi. I was um, wanting to ask if one factor in uh, elder abuse could be the fact that um, many older people don't really have a choice where they live and so sometimes family members are thrown together when if they had a choice they might not be for example with the cost of housing now um, for anyone on a low income um, rents mortgages um, the rest of it are so 
extreme, uh, extremely expensive now that it probably forces um, elderly people to maybe live in with other members of the family who may be abusing them. Do you think that could be a factor, especially with the sell-off and demolition of public housing now? So there's a lack of access to public housing. The lack of access to affordable housing is certainly an issue and it plays out for older people as well as their family members. So we see it happen both ways. We see that older people are in a situation where they can't afford to be where they are so they they then live with their their um, their relatives, um, as I said, usually their younger adult children. And when I say younger, I'm talking about 50 and 40-year-olds. Mm. Um, but we also see the situation where... Um, their adult children have lost their housing for various reasons. There may be unemployment or their business has gone bust or they've separated from their family or there's mental health issues or whatever. And so the older person takes them back into their home and it's because that, that younger adult, that adult son and daughter, hasn't been able to find housing themselves. So I think that the, the access to good affordable housing impacts across the generations. Of course, it's a strong impact for a, a much older person because they don't have the, the luxury of being able to go out to work and earn money to find alternative accommodation. So, um, you know, it is, it is a, an impact which is harder for older people. And Senior Rights Victoria has put out a call for a list of things, a national prevalence study into the incidence of elder abuse, national systematized data collection, a national public awareness campaign, more funding for organizations that respond to elder abuse, appropriate training of people who work with older people, and an investigative body that can deal with abuse allegations raised by concerned others. I'm just wondering, that's, that's a lot of staff and it will require money. I'm wondering if the government has come to the party and offered any sort of funding to set up this sort of um, surveillance. No there's, been, no, there's been no offer of funding at this stage. I'm hopeful that uh, given that uh, the Australian Law Reform Commission has received a reference that when they make recommendations that there might be a response with some funds from the government. However, um, we don't have that at this stage and I think that we really need to have a, a national plan developed like we have with family violence, which will then um, hopefully mean that government commits to some of those actions within the plan. And I think that a, a, a very good starting point is to raise awareness that it exists, it, it exists uh, elder abuse, and we have some media around that. And um, did you get any response from um, Attorney General George Brandis around that area at all, or was he not in a position to do so? No, he, he didn't respond to that. Um, as I said, what he did was announce that there was this referral, but there was uh, and, 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 uh, and a recognition that this was a, an issue that needed to be dealt with. So we are hopeful that that leaves the, the door open for us to have further discussions and therefore to be further initiatives down the track. Uh, we recognise that some of these things have budget implications and so they need to go through um, probably government committees to mm. uh, get that approval. Um, but we're really hopeful that 
we haven't got there, but <laughs> yes. the door isn't closed. Okay, um, just to to finalise the the interview, I just wonder if you could um, tell listeners if there's anything they can do to help your campaign. Uh, what they can do is certainly be aware of elder abuse. So um, being aware of older people, paying them respect, listening to them, giving more time to hear what they have to say. If they notice that there's any particular change in an older person, maybe they suddenly seem to have difficulty with their money or paying bills, or they seem that they've been... Um, they can see bruises or that they've uh, become more withdrawn or depressed. They might be, they might not, might not be elder abuse, but it might be signs of it. So talking to them, asking how's things going, making sure that they're connected and not socially isolated so that they've got people that they can talk to if things are going wrong. And, uh, give our helpline a, a call if, uh, if, uh, they've got any concerns or they can ask older people to, to give our helpline a call and, um, which is? We can then, we can assist from there, which is, uh, 1300 368 821. Mm-hmm. And you also have a website. Pardon? You also have a website. We do have a website, yes. We do have the website, which is seniorsrights.org.au. Okay. Thank you so much, Jenny, for um, being up at this hour of the day to <laughs> make time to talk to us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. That's Jenny Blakey from the Senior Rights Victoria. And we have other news on the elderly. Um, Chris, do you have that news or Sue about the fact, about the fact that um, there was a statement made earlier this week that um, I think it was one of the Liberal MPs or backbenchers made a statement to the extent of getting um, people who are in the retirement age, what they should do is either mortgage or sell their home. Was to hate Carnell, the CEO yes. of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Thank Industry. You. <laughs> Thank you, yes. Who used to be the Chief Minister of the ACT government. Oh, God. So what did she actually say? She basically, said that, she? what she said, there's an article in the current issue of Green Left Weekly yes. um, that... Uh, basically said that four out of five people on age pension own their own homes. Therefore, the pension they receive should be treated like a loan, uh, which would then be repaid to the government out of the proceeds of the sale of their homes when they die. She said the government should consider transferring pension payments uh, to own occupiers into a loan that is recoverable against their property when it is sold, potentially with a residual value that would allow pensioners to access equity for other purposes, such as aged care. And there was a real backlash against this, especially on the Unions Australia, Australian Union's Facebook page, um, with, where some people invented a meme saying, hand it over grandma, <laughs> and then other people responded by saying, you know, I have paid for my pension already That's through right. my taxes. Exactly. Um, the mm-hmm. idea of grabbing the homes of retired workers who've slogged all their lives to pay off their mortgage is outrageous. Mm. It's just absolutely outrageous. And um, that, mean, mean, that is elder abuse. <laughs> well, that's right. And then, well, actually, the previous interviewer, interviewee, um, actually acknowledged that housing is a large yes. factor when you force people who don't want to live together to live together. Mm. That me- that can result in 
whether it's elder abuse or other sorts of abuse. Um, it's very it's, stressful, it's wouldn't it? Very, it is very stressful. And meanwhile, there are some rich people who own a number of houses, yes. several houses, <laughs> yes. and those um, they get a break, they get a tax cut Negative for gearing. owning. <laughs> that's right, for owning several houses. Where's well, so the justice here? Make this. It just, it's got to make you think, doesn't it? Mm. You, you know how the system is so unfair. It's skewed against mm. the people who want to have just a comfortable, decent life. It's not even. Uh, excessive the pension you get it's just minimal it's enough mm. to survive on it's not that you can go on a luxury boat cruise every year or something it's just enough to pay your bills pay your food transport and so on mm. even that is being targeted maybe targeted we don't know yet but this is a suggestion made by this woman it's yeah. a shame it's a real shame what yeah. kind of um, country do we live in anyway any further news Chris you got something else on uh, okay um Good news for fossil fuel companies um, with Australia's big four banks, uh, Commonwealth, NAB, ANZ, all uh, giving them more money this year. How does that happen? Um, Well, the statement from ANZ was... um, No, sorry. NAB said that fossil fuel will continue to be a major energy source for the foreseeable future. And together, all four banks have put $5.5 billion of financing to the point where the struggling uh, Whitehaven Coal uh, CEO uh, Paul Flynn told Fairfax that those that think Paris means coal industry in the past may want to rethink that with the new funding deal. So he thanked them for giving them more money to keep going. How nice. Here we are fighting against this sort of stuff and we want... Renewable energy, and this is just also an after the Paris conference. Mm. How progressive and how reassuring that we are going to pollute the, the environment even more. That's right. Anyway, um, next, Sue. Next is uh, a protest by hundreds of Rio Tinto sacked seafarers. Um, more than 400 workers from several unions, in particular the CFMU and the MUA, took their fight to the billion-dollar miner Rio Tinto for its complicity in sacking Australian seafarers and replacing them with foreign workers who were paid as little as $2 an hour. Um, this has, um, is very similar to what happened to the workers, um, the seafarers who were occupying the ship at Portland, the Alcoa ship, um, trying to save their jobs. So um, what happened in this case, this new case with Rio Tinto, is that on the 5th of February in the port of Newcastle, five crew members were marched down the gangway of the CSL Melbourne by more than 30 police. Those same police escorted the foreign replacement crew onto the ship to sail it away. The CSL Melbourne had carried alumina from Gladstone to Newcastle for Rio Tinto's sub, uh, subsidiary Pacific Aluminium for more than three years. The route between Queensland and New South Wales is still being used, but the company received a temporary licence from the federal government, which meant the Australian crew could be replaced by foreign uh, seafarers, not subject to the same rights and conditions as their Australian counterparts. Now, this sort of brings up a very important issue 
because if the government can allow overseas workers and, you know, I think overseas workers deserve to have a right to have a job like any other workers, like mm. lo- local workers, overseas workers, all, all human beings have a, right to, have a right to work. But the really dangerous thing in this is the fact that one workforce can be replaced by another workforce, whether they're Australian or from overseas, without the same rights and conditions as the original workforce. So that means if the Australian government and big corporations can get away with this um, on um, the Australian coastline, then it means they can they will start to use this as a thin edge of the wedge to introduce this in other parts of Australia for other other jobs because these jobs um, these particular jobs um, seafarers jobs are jobs which simply sail around the coast in Australia so it's equivalent to a truck driving from Sydney to Melbourne that's right and so in the future if this keeps going they could decide to do this with truck drivers, with all sorts of different occupations in Australia. Well, isn't, isn't that the campaign, um, uh, not just uh, jobs being exported overseas, it's also bringing overseas workers for a lesser wage. The union has been saying that this is, this is exactly what the union predicted. This is what will happen, the, the level of wages, all the conditions and wages the unions have fought for over the decades is going to go around the gurgler because overseas workers were brought in they'll get paid more than what they would if they had been working at home, but they will get less than what we have set a standard in in Australia through struggle over the decades. So what they're doing is reducing the working conditions and wages of everybody in Australia. And this has been a major um, thorn in the side, and the unions have campaigned against this. But they're being accused of being xenophobic because they are being racist. This is sort of language that's used to beat down the unions who protest overseas workers being brought in to take over local jobs. So it's it's quite a vicious mix of language and campaigns and interaction because you can't um, you know, you can't depend or believe the government, but then they've got this anti-union campaign going with ABCC and so on, that people are reluctant to even believe the unions. But this is a good, concrete example of what the government has done and will continue to do. And what makes me more fearful is the fact that TPP is about to be signed. We haven't had any huge campaign around it, unfortunately, in Australia. You know, New Zealand has had a big campaign, and I think Malaysia had a massive campaign against it. But here in Australia, there's no campaign. So if the TPP is signed, that means, uh, in fact, it's got a clause that says, you know, local material and local, um, even even workers, are, you know, can't be used in certain instances. They have to use, uh, they have to broaden it out and give others from overseas a chance. So this strengthens the position for them to allow the TPP to be implemented more aggressively by foreign companies into Australia. And that's really scary stuff. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so that's another scam. We'll just go to a station announcement for people to get over that view. <laughs> so m- the next piece of news is about plans for a nuclear waste dump in South Australia again. So basically, um, 
on the the headlines on the February 16 edition of South Australia's only daily newspaper, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, the advertiser, welcomed the recommendation from the Nuclear Fuel Cycle Royal Commission for a nuclear waste dump in outback South Australia. The commission cost a massive $8 million, all funded out of the pockets of ordinary people through their taxes, Um, The three full pages were given over to gushing endorsements. Um, This is in the advertiser uh, with headlines including a $445 billion bonanza lies in store and an unimaginably huge bucket full of money. Um, Reporter Daniel Wells waxed lyrical, imagine Scrooge McDuck swimming through a money bin of growing gold coins. Well, you know, that is just crazy, crazy rhetoric from the mainstream media about um, a nuclear waste dump. And we had um, yesterday or the day before uh, Jay Weatherall, the South Australian Premier, basically waxing lyrical about how we um, need to really look seriously at a a nuclear waste dump. If uh, South Australia can get money out of such a proposal, then South Australia should go for it. What was scarce in the media, or non-existent practically, was any discussion about the problems of nuclear waste dump, the problems of storing radioactive waste for thousands of years. Um, you know, all all that people were subjected to was these crazy headlines and crazy comments from the Premier about what a bucket load of cash the nuclear waste dump would mean. Meanwhile, um, unre- virtually unreported by the mainstream media, people have been starting to get together to organise against any kind of nuclear waste dump. Yes, that has always been a huge problem and especially for the Aboriginal community um, the fact that you just dump things into sacred sites and so on has never been talked about it's always a focus on economy isn't it it's, it's a it's an issue and uh, campaigns are starting to, to heat up Dave Sweeney talked about it uh, last week with me in one of the programs so let's hope a campaign starts up to address those issues now I have um, Giselle Nguyen on the line Hi. Morning, um, Giselle, and I've got uh, Sue Bolton and um, Chris Peterson as guests in my in the studio as well. Now, Giselle is is from Cherchella uh, La Femme, and she, we're going to talk about a topic that's really talked about, which is feminism and journalism and issues for women journalists. Giselle, tell us a little bit about your experiences. Perhaps we can start with that. Okay, so basically um, the panel that I am going to be on at Social FM is about feminism and journalism, which I think is a really important topic, um, especially at the moment with the last few months of really prominent issues um, in the mainstream media about the issues that women face in journalism, such as harassment and so on. So my background is that I um, studied journalism at university and kind of went on to do a whole bunch of different non-journalism things. But in the last few months, I've come back to it and write a weekly column for a feminist website. And what I have found, uh, it's great to have a platform, but at the same time, being a woman in that position, um, 
I have found that you do open yourself up to a lot of criticism that is often really gendered, especially if you're writing about issues that face women and feminist issues in particular. And um, I think that, from my experience anyway, um, being a journalist or a writer in the public eye as I am, I've had to grow a thick skin very quickly, um, which I think many women journalists can probably relate to. Hmm. So exactly how does this pan out? Because um, the media then becomes biased, uh, either against women or is biased towards um, male writers or contributors. Would that be the case, you think? Um, well, I mean, I think that's that's a problem just in society generally. But, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like in the circles that I move in, which are quite progressive, that's not really a problem. But the thing with online is, especially with comment sections and social media and all that kind of stuff, uh, you're opening yourself up to a, a much wider audience, including people who are there for the express purpose of harassment and trolling and stuff like that. And that's definitely something that female journalists in particular have to deal with, which I think everyone saw to a large extent late last year with Clementine Ford's um, bringing bringing those kinds of issues to the public eye about uh, harassment of women online and trolling and all that kind of stuff. So I think it is definitely something that is very gendered. And whether or not... I. I feel like it might make some women shy away from wanting to enter the profession, especially digitally. But, um, yeah, I think it's not so much that it creates a, a bias in the media as much as that bias already exists generally in the world. Yeah. So, oh, just the next question. Uh, it's Sue here. Um, I was wondering, is the harassment... Um, connected to uh, particular topics that women journalists write about or is it just that people raise criticisms of, of you know, what women journalists are saying but, um, but uh, have a nasty gendered focus to the way they, um, to what they write? Like, could you sort of give us some examples and, Give us a little bit more detail of of how it all pans out in reality. Sure. Um, well, I think that, like I said, women who write specifically about feminism cop it pretty hard because some people don't want to take those truths. So, for example, earlier this week, I, I wrote a column about um, male superiority complex and how men often just assume that they know more than women about culture or politics or whatever. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) We all do. We all do. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So so, so I wrote about that. Um, Generally, it went pretty well, but some of the comments were pretty pretty angry just from people who aren't interested in listening to those kinds of truths. So, I mean, I'm sure... I can only speak from my own experience here, um, and those are the topics that I tend to write about. But, um, yeah, I'm sure that women journalists in general probably do probably do get more gendered harassment than men, but definitely if you're writing about issues of 
gender or, or race or any, anything that's a little bit contentious or anything that might make people challenge their own perceptions of the world. I feel like that's, that's when people may get defensive, which can manifest itself in really ugly ways, especially online. You talk about social media. What about the general media, like TV, newspapers, radio? Do women have similar experiences in that in that area as well? And this is keeping in mind. Generally, we live in a sexist society or a patriarchal mm. society. Would there be, um, you know, journalists who suffer in that the general main media arena as well? Yeah. Well, I think that um, one of the issues is that there's a real problem with um, selecting women as experts or subjects just because of this thing like i said before where it's it's generally kind of the general kind of consensus for whatever reason that men um know more than women especially in areas like um tech journalism or music journalism i think that women do suffer because they have to work even harder to prove themselves than men do which i think is the same generally in society so i mean my experience is mostly with online journalism because that's all i've worked with um but i definitely think that it's an issue that exists overall as well okay i just want to go to the um seminar that you are going to be a part of yeah it's being hosted by karen pickering and amy middleton who is mm-hmm. the founding editor of archer magazine and is yourself and laurel laurel I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Irving from Seven News, Melbourne. Not being Anglo-Saxon, I also have difficulty with this name. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the uh, three of you are talking about feminism journalism, and that is happening on the 1st of March, which is a Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, but it's study and 8.30, and that's being held at the Melbourne um, Spiegel Tent 35, Johnson Street, Collingwood. Is it a pub or a hall or something? Um, it's kind of like a little... I don't really know how to explain it. It's, so it's it's kind of like... Uh, it, it does have a bar, but it is just a little kind of... From the outside, it looks it looks quite odd because it looks kind of like a circus-y thing. But when you go inside, it is like a kind of hall thing and they do have um, a bar and then outside we're going to have food trucks. Okay, sounds good. So we've got the address, 35 Johnson Street, and it's a a great panel of speakers. And um, there are the tickets too, $15 pre-booked via tri-booking and $20 at the door. Yeah, I think it should be um, a really interesting panel just because there's quite a range of experiences Okay. on there and yeah it should be pretty good yeah so the Amy Middleton from Archer magazine and Channel 7 news reporter Laurel uh, Irving um, would you have any idea what they will be talking about I'm not sure I haven't met either of them so I'm quite interested to um, quite interested to see where our experience differ and how they're the same and um, Shesla FM is, is pretty good because it's the usual format is that the first half is the discussion with the panelists, and the second half is opening up to the audience. Good. That's what questions. people like. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
So so it's pretty interactive and I think it should be quite interesting. So the the, the array of people are really good because one's from the uh, TV area, one is from the magazine area and yourself on the social media area. So it should be a very good discussion, guys. This is coming up to International Women's Day. So this is an area which is not commonly or widely discussed or talked about. Um, sexism, basically, in among uh, the media, really, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Now, sounds good, Giselle, and uh, hope that forum turns out to be really good. We'll announce it again before the end of the show. Cool. And thank, um, you. thank you for being available to 3CR this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye, Giselle. Okay. Bye. Okay. We might go on to a couple of announcements, maybe, following up, following on the um, that panel that we talked about, Shersha. Uh, La Femme we can hear you rustling your paper guys <laughs> it's going across to all the listeners um, there are a few rallies coming up or meetings coming up do we have a list of um, activities uh, correct yes well um, just following on uh, women's liberation there will be a protest on International Women's Day that will be at 5.30 at the State Library on the corner of Latrobe and Swanson Streets. That's on Tuesday, March 8th in the evening. What time? What, 6.30? Uh, 5.30pm. Okay, so straight after work. Correct, that's Sounds right. Uh, as we mentioned before, there will be the big uh, Walk for Justice for Refugees on the 20th of March. That will be at the State Library as well at 2 in the afternoon, so you've got time for a sleep-in. Last year they got 15,000 people. Mm, Hopefully you'll get more this year. Fingers crossed, yes. Uh, Coming up uh, next Tuesday night, there'll be a forum on healthcare. Is it a profit-making opportunity or a public service? And the guest speaker will be Craig McGregor from the Victorian Allied Health Professionals and also Zita, from, uh, who's a nurse uh, from Geelong. That will be 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre on Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, which is next door to RMIT. And that one's got a screening of a film about the US health system, hasn't it? The event on Tuesday? Uh, correct. It's about the horrors of the um, US health system. And Craig, who will be speaking, has made a lot of noise about the fact that all this money is going into the military when it should be going into the health system. Well, it's a concrete bit of noise because what he's um, purporting to say mm. is that, you know, the privatisation process in the US has produced some of the worst consequences for people. Um, throughout the whole of the US. Mm. So it'll be interesting to, to, to explore that issue and the fact that Australia is trying to follow the model, the US model in health service delivery, um, and especially when you pay tax, mm. to have a decent public health care system. Yeah, where, what's the venue for the public meeting? Oh, I just read that out. It was at Resistance Centre, Level 5407 Swanson Street, which is next to RMIT. Opposite. That's right, opposite RMIT, that's correct. Um, And Malcolm Turnbull's in town on Saturday night. Yes, I wonder if anyone's going to protest. (laughs) Yes, there will be a protest from about (laughs) 5.30, which will involve refugee activists and First Nations activists, and that will be on the corner of um, Lonsdale and Swanson, which is just next to the State Library. So when is this? That will be Saturday night. What time? Starts at 5.30. Okay. So that's good. Anything else happening? Uh, what else have we got here? 
there will be a forum on how to stop violence against women on Tuesday, March 22nd. Um, I think speakers are being confirmed. And that will be at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, opposite yep. RMIT. Now, for people who live in Geelong, if anyone's listening, there is a forum on... Uh, that is about in, it, it's about International Women's Day and, and union activities and involvement of women in union um, activities. It will be, unfortunately, at 7 o'clock before you go off to work. That will be on the 11th of um, March. I'm speaking at it. <laughs> and and um, uh, the HSUA um, organisers also speaking at it. Where, where is that going to be? That's in Geelong Trades Hall. Geelong Trades Hall, yes, okay. Yes, so that'll be interesting. And, and those who, listeners who may be able to speak Tamil, there's a forum on the 6th, which is a Sunday, at the Preston Town Hall. Again, it's a women's forum um, about... Uh, migrant women and Tamil women and why women um, don't involve themselves in politics and uh, there's a range of other speakers as well on women's issues um, so if those are interested you know that'll be all in Tamil um, so if you don't speak Tamil I wouldn't bother <laughs> See, there's something else just to um, which may be at a future program we can discuss in a bit more detail, but this is a little bit of an alert, um, is that in mid-May there's going to be a Socialism of the 21st Century Conference. That's right. Which will have a whole lot of uh, socialist activists and other progressive activists coming from all over Asia, from the Philippines, from India, from Pakistan, Pakistan, Malaysia. Yeah, Indonesia. Yes. Possibly uh, New Caledonia, yep. um, and as well as local activists. And we have the South American writer, uh, Marta Hanukkah. Marta Hanukkah, the first time she has been to Australia, yeah. a long-time Latin American revolutionary, yes. and Michael Lebovitz, yes. um, who will be have been living in Venezuela for a number of years and been involved, um, Marta Hanukkah, particularly in the... Uh, workers' control and workers' co-op movement. So that will be fascinating. So listen to this program again to get a bit more detail about the agenda. Now, the conference is actually being held in Sydney, so it's, we'll give more information yeah. later on. Okay, we have um, Geraldine Atkinson, who's a Deputy Chairperson of the Secretariat National Aboriginal and Islander Child Care Agency on, on the line. Good morning, Good Geraldine. Morning. Good morning. Well, thank you so much for um, making the time to talk to 3CI. I know you're in Canberra, and it's pretty early in the morning for you. But um, Snake had put out a, a press release about the budget-based funding in brief BBF. I wonder if you can talk to it. Uh, yes, look, we, we, it's about the, the our job for families' childcare package um, that we, we were concerned about that's going to be introduced in 2017. And what happens with that is it's the program that we're funded under will be abolished and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students are going to, to have to access this uh, package with childcare subsidy. And the concerns that we have is that... Um, so over 19,000 kids that are supported under this program, our budget-based funded program, 80% Indigenous... So it'll hardly access to subsidised um, early learning under this mainstream system to 
probably essentially one day a week for families earning less than $65,000 a year. Um, we had we had a, a report that uh, the Lloyd Allen uh, Economics did for us pro bono that shows evidence that was released that shows that key components of the package may significantly reduce early learning access for, um, for Indigenous children. It will increase childcare costs for poor families and it threatens the viability of community-owned services, which a lot of our services are. There's many Aboriginal community-owned control services and particularly in the rural and remote areas. So the impact of this may be that the services will close. And then that just goes to show that some of our uh, children don't have access to early childhood education. Mm. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Go just on. thinking, what, was, what instigated this um, move by the government? I mean, they're always saying they want to close the gap and they also want to improve education. They want to improve health. It's a constant sing song that go, that car- that's carried on by the government. But this proposal seems to be the exact opposite of what they are always talking about, like a spin in the media. Well, they, they, what they what they wanted to do was have a childcare package that they believe would be suitable for you know across the board for everybody, but it's not. Uh, they think, you know, like they want the, the main, the main, uh, gist of the package is the subsidy. So that also, you know, um, middle to income, middle to higher income, uh, earners, but, you know, the professional people that can't afford childcare at home, not working. So this basically will, um, help both, both, uh, families and parents get back into the workforce. So it's about, it's all about workforce participation. It's not about looking at what, uh, the needs are of other, of other children in the community. Um, so that's, that's what we're saying. But what they, what they have, they have a, 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 a two-part program. That's something that both, both parents that I've just mentioned can access. But there is also a safety net. Um, and in that, what the government is saying, uh, they're saying that, well, you, you, you guys, you families, that's all, and Tarasad Island families will have access to that safety net. Your services won't have to worry because there's a safety net there for you, but, but what, the, what they're not saying is that within the safety net, uh, there are, you know, you have to, you have to uh, demonstrate that our children are abused and neglected and, and at risk for us to, um, to access that safety net. And we don't want to put those labels on our families, we don't want to put those labels on our children. Exactly. Uh, I think that what we want to do is work from a strict-based uh, approach. So we're saying that you know that we don't we don't need that we don't need uh, we don't need that language when it talks about you know children that we that uh, that we have in our services. So we're saying no, we think that that language is wrong, and we need and it needs to be you know what we're saying. There's also another component of that, which is the community childcare fund. Now that that has um, I think it has two point something million one point something million a, a year in that but also not just ours and they're saying this is where we can we can write submission uh, it's a grant process it, it, and it'll be what we feel it'll be like the IAS um, situation all over again so our services that are a small national community controlled services with you know no real administ- health administration assistance will have to write submission to can to access that component of this package. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be um, 
it'll be, and it, we saw that it'll be like the Indigenous advancement strategies all over again, which was really a, a traumatic, you know, experience for a lot of our, our Aboriginal services. So that's what government, uh, that's why government's saying, and that's why they're introducing this and why they've abolished uh, the budget base, why they're abolishing the budget base funded program that we get all our services access. Mm. So this is in addition to the half a, a billion dollar cut that the health services are uh, suffering already. Yes. yes. So it's, it's all piling up. And, and the other thing is, I know for a fact, because I work in the um, uh, Victorian um, Aboriginal Health Care Service, I'm, I'm fully aware that the children um, at three and a half, Aboriginal children, are eligible to have um, free or very cheap uh, kindergarten to enable them to take the first step towards the education system and which will assist them and support them in staying in school and that's your first mm-hmm. step of early education. So will that be also affected in this program? No, no, because that's because that, that the state funds fund preschool and in Victoria we're, we're being really blessed that the state picks up uh, pays the fees for Aboriginal and State Island children in any preschool uh, in the state. So that, that's not touched. That's a state, a state uh, service. But it really, really, when you look, you know, we, ha- we evidence and, and we, we had, this week we had Fiona Stanley to do a presentation and she, she says that it's from naught to eight years old that are the crucial brain building moments in a child's life. So what we do is we have children in our service that are from naught to five years old. Mm. This is where the, the, the most you know, the crucial time for early learning is. And that's what we do. We do more than just provide childcare. That's, what, that's what's so different about our services. We don't just provide childcare. We provide education and care. It's early learning education and care that we have. So in our programs, you know, the kids are learning from the time that they come in. They are, we, in, in a, what we've done is we've had, without the state, we've had, you know, we've enjoyed uh, having our workers qualified. So we have, you know, certificate three, diploma trained and uh, bachelor trained uh, educators in our services that are working with our kids because we understand that, you know, our kids are beyond the eight ball and they need that early intensive learning so that they, you know, so that you talk, that by the time that they get to school, they are able to, to do so seamlessly without any worries. So okay? that you talked about the gap that exists in grade, that starts in grade three now. Mm. That, uh, that by the time our kids get in there, what we're, what we're doing and what why we really need these services is that by the time these kids get to grade three, they won't be in that proportion that where the, you know that a, a gap is identified. That they'll go through school. They won't be in that in that uh, cohort of students that the grade three are behind the gap which is this, and that, in the, that are in grade five where it widens even more. Mm. So by the time they get to year seven, it's, what, it's wider. By the time they get to year nine, it's, it's even wider still. And then by the time they get to year 12, you know, our kids, half of our kids don't even complete uh, uh, year 12. Yeah, it's bad numbers. It is. Many of them drop out early because of the totally they unfriendly, um, hostile education system towards Aboriginal children. Uh, one one um, other question, um, Geraldine, is you know how they teach Aboriginal language in the Northern Territory for children um, yes. to be able to retain them in school. Will that program be affected? Uh, no. 
No. That's a relief. I, I, don't, I don't know that it will be. I will be. I'll just talk about a bit about here in uh, Victoria what we're doing, uh, which is the Victorian National Education Association. We've been negotiating with government so that that there are schools in uh, metropolitan Melbourne that are going to be teaching language. So we want it's essential that language is taught to Aboriginal children mm. because language languages comprises of not just language but comprises of a whole lot of cultural programs including that as well and that's what we really we really and we find that it uh, it, it assists these children it builds their self-esteem and their confidence and it, it makes them proud of being Aboriginal so that they don't have to have you know sort of low 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 self-esteem yes um, so language uh, and I would say I don't know about Victoria, about the Northern Church, and I don't believe, and I, at, at this time I can't really uh, say what's going to happen there. But we, we honestly believe that language is an important, important component yes. mm. to kids having learning about their culture and about building that self-esteem within them. And that's actually one of the biggest factors that, that keeps the children going back to school and start dropping off, isn't it? Um, it's, it's such an important part of it. Now, before I let you go, Geraldine, I wonder if you want to make any comment about the... I know you haven't read the report, but close no. the gap. Um, no, any comments? I, I just want to say that if this government is really serious about closing the gap with Aboriginal you know, sort of within Aboriginal communities that we have, you know, so that gap gets closed, well, they really need to consider uh, what's going to occur with this new uh, jobs for families childcare package. And what they need to do is they need to, and what we're asking them to do, we're asking them to quarantine the, a portion we're asking out of $3.5 billion, we're asking uh, $100 million in that childcare, uh, community childcare package to be quarantined so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, Aboriginal control-owned uh, services will be able to still offer the same programs that they do now to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, and then they won't be left behind. So that that that, that, that doesn't lie. So if they if they don't do this, if they don't look at what this, this package, then we're going to have that gap is going to be widened, not yes. closed. Mm. So, okay, um, on that note, thank you very much for being available um, to 3CR, Geraldine. Uh, very kind okay. of you to talk to us, and no, we might keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. That was Geraldine, and I'm sorry mm-hmm. the line wasn't so mm-hmm. um, clear because I think she was um, from Can. She's attending a conference in Canberra. I might just quickly um, give a summary of the issue that she was trying to address for those who couldn't hear her probably. The budget-based funding in BRAFE BBF program is a specific program designed for areas where a user pays model is not viable, and this will be abolished. Currently, 80% of services in this program are for Indigenous children. So 75% of the Indigenous children participating in the BBF um, who don't meet the activity tests will be compromised. 40% of families currently accessing this program um, would receive less subsidies, uh, subsidized hours of childcare, um, and then they do currently, which averages to about 13 hours less per week. 54% of families who are currently access this um, program uh, will be subject to higher out-of-pocket costs, which means they will not go to childcare, with an average cost of $4.42 per hour for those negatively impacted. 
The average change in hourly fees is most extreme for families earning less than 65,000 per year, which is, as I said, a vast majority of the Aboriginal community and the non-Aboriginal community as well. And this is in particular for the Aboriginal community that we are talking about here. 67, 67% of BBF services will receive reduced government revenue, decreasing by an average of 9.1%. This is a particular hit, hits if this particularly hits small, regional, and remote services. And that is areas that often have very low immunization rates, very low educational rates, very low um, employment rates. And this is this current government's policy. And I, I leave you to decide what sort of government we have. Well, one comment <laughs> on that is that I think there is a lot of public concern about two issues, about... Indigenous disadvantage and also about family violence. Mm. And what we see in both areas is governments and politicians who pretend they care, pretend they care about Indigenous people and pretend they care about women uh, facing violence while they're chopping, drastically chopping services to Aboriginal communities and they're drastically chopping family violence services, domestic violence services. So we have this double speak by the government all the time. Forked tongues. Yeah, absolutely. And there's all this superficiality. And, you know, White Ribbon Day drives me crazy every year with with a lot of politicians who are cutting services to women. Mm. And the Aboriginal community... That's right. And the Aboriginal community must also be absolutely livid when they watch these politicians parading around about closing the gap when they're actually doing the opposite. Mm. And then we have mining magnates like Andrew Forrester who paraded around as Mr. Good Guy who's providing Aboriginal people jobs when actually that's not what he's doing. Mm. He's got all of this media attention uh, to show that he's doing great things for Aboriginal people. But in reality, he's robbing using some Aboriginal people to against other Aboriginal people to rob them of their land and he's not really genu- providing genuine jobs to Aboriginal workers in his minds. Okay. Now, there's uh, some news on the BDS campaign. Who's going to talk about it? Uh, yes, the Palestine BDS campaign has scored a win uh, with an Irish concrete company withdrawing its 25% stake in an Israeli firm. Yay. And It looks like this concrete company helped to build the apartheid wall, so this is a big victory. Mm, Sounds good. A few things happening like that around Mm. the world. You know, more and more the awareness is is seeping through. And and, um, I read somewhere recently that uh, Israel, which is actually occupied Palestine, has lost about $4 billion in the mm. annual budget because of the BDS campaign. And no one's talking about it. It's all hush-hush secret. And BDS, for listeners who aren't aware, is a boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign, yep. which Israel is squealing about. Um, and it's been a really important campaign mm. because, in reality, Palestinians especially Palestinians living in Gaza, 
it's sort of like a big open-air prison. That's, That's right. really what you can describe it as. There's no freedom of movement in or out of Gaza or even really in and out of West Bank, even though it's a bit more freer there. It's um, So really, there's no way Palestinians can militarily defeat Israel. No. They don't have... Only stones. They don't have weapons to combat Israel's, you know, state-of-the-art, state-of-the-art well, military. They are the fourth um, largest armament owners in the world right. with, with the support of the wonderful USA. That's right, and often when they bombard uh, Gaza, it also serves a purpose, a double purpose, both of the Israeli occupation but also um, an advertisement for their military wares to the rest of the world, That's for right. the Israeli military-industrial complex. So the poor, um, it, it's just amazing to see the resistance that keeps on coming to oh, the Palestinians. Yes. It yeah. truly is heroic. Yeah. Um, but the boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign is a way of really broadening out the struggle and really this is something we've got to get back into in a serious way in Australia. Yep. Any other news before we wind up the program for this morning? I've got one little bit. Yep. Go uh, it can be as short or as long as you like. Um, a charge of intimidation against a construction forestry mining energy union organiser has been thrown out of court in Sydney. So this is the third failed criminal prosecution arising from the Trade Union Royal Com- Commission. And none of these three cases, which have all been used against CFMU officials, none of them are to do with actual corruption. They're all to do with u- um, union organisers going on site to organise workers and um, this is a third case. So it's an indication that this whole commission was nothing to do with trying to root out corruption, which, of course, we don't want corruption in the union movement. It was really designed to target militant unions like the CFMEU. Yeah. Well, the, the attack on the unions has been relentless, hasn't it? And, and this, is, this is part of the package that comes to the Liberal governments where they consistently attack the unions, consistently attack workers, they consistently attack women, their working conditions, uh, their wages, safety. Health and safety has got another gurgler over the last uh, you know, couple of decades. They've changed the legislation many times. So the unions have been beaten over and over and over again, and that shows, uh, in a sense, in the membership decline in the trade unions too. But that's the area that I guess people have to work out, increasing membership, increasing the strength of the unions. How we do that is up to uh, people who are um, working. Now, um, we're almost at the end of the program. Um, I need to thank um, Jenny Blakey, who is from the Seniors' Rights Victoria, who this organization just had its fourth um, annual conference that finished yesterday. And for those who want to uh, seek out more information about them, it's all the W's, seniorsrights, one word, dot org, dot au. And there's a helpline, which is 1-300-368-821. That's 1-300-368-821. Now, the other um, uh, person we interviewed was uh, Giselle Nguyen, who is going to be part of a panel on the 1st of March, they are presenting a forum on feminism and journalism. That will be at 
the 35 Johnson Street. It's called Melba uh, Spiegel, Spiegel Tent, sorry about the pronunciation, in Collingwood. Uh, that's between 6.30 and 8.30. It's a Tuesday, 1st of March. And if you want to get tickets, it's um, try booking. It's $15 pre-booked and $20 at the door. That should be a very interesting area for those who are interested. Uh, please turn up there. And lastly but not least, we had Geraldine Atkinson, who is the deputy chairperson and president of the Victoria, no, she's a deputy chairperson of the Secretariat National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare, which is in brief called SNAKE. And she's the president of the Victorian Aboriginal Education Association. The line was a bit poor with that interview, and my apologies to the listeners, but I hope you got the gist of what she was talking about in relation to the massive funding cut the government is, is installing on punishing the the community, really, on this childcare area, which undermines the very concept of trying to close the gap. So the Close the Gap report, and this comes uh, one after the other, with very little for the Aboriginal, complete, uh, Aboriginal community, community to feel positive or optimistic about. So if you um, want to participate, go to their website and see um, what can be done. It's, again, all the W's. Snake S N A I C dot org dot A U. Thank you to listeners for tuning in this morning. And Sue Bolton and Chris Peterson are guests at the studio. I'm Lalita Chalaya. Um, tune in next Friday for more of um Friday Breakfast and Green Left Weekly News.